I'm Kim Singletary. And I'm Rich Collins with Biz New Orleans Magazine. Welcome to Biz Talks. Each week, we reach beyond the pages of Biz New Orleans Magazine to bring you in-depth conversations with members of the business community. From the names everyone knows to the ones destined to make their mark, we'll dive into the top issues, best practices, successes, and failures of every industry that calls Southeast Louisiana home. Welcome to this week's episode of Biz Talks. This is Kim Singletary. I'm the managing editor of Biz New Orleans Magazine. And right now there's nothing any of us wants more than for the COVID-19 vaccine and drug research to go as fast as possible. And that's why I'm excited to talk today to Jay Rappaport. He is the principal investigator and director of the Tulane National Primate Research Center which has just been selected to lead a new partnership between the seven federally funded national primate research centers that are combining their efforts to find a new way um, of doing their work that uses fewer animals and more rigorous controls. Um, That partnership is just one part of what all the COVID related news that the primate research center has been doing lately. So I wanted to catch up and and see what's, what's going on. So welcome Mr. Rappaport. Oh, thank you very much, Kim. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for reaching out and you know giving us this opportunity to tell you about what we do. So well, I've kind of heard about the center, but I don't know too much about it. So where where are you guys located, and how long have you been been operating? What do you guys do out there? Okay, so we are located in uh, Covington, Louisiana. We are on the uh, north shore of Lake Pontchartrain. So uh, we're close to in the New Orleans area. So if you cross uh, the Causeway Bridge, which is 23 miles, this is where we are on the North Shore. And we're actually, you know, we have about 500 acres of land. We have a large breeding colony. And, uh, and as uh, Kim mentioned, we're one of seven national primate research centers. And the, our mission is to serve as a local, regional, and national resource for uh, research uh, using non-human primates. We actually breed these animals. We have a large breeding, uh, breeding colony, primarily of, of rhesus monkeys, rhesus macaques of Indian origin. Um, and we have almost 5,000 of these in our, in our colony. Um, so 5,000 monkeys on 500 acres, is that what you're at? Yeah. Yeah, well, actually, about half of our campus is the breeding colony, uh, and and the other half are our research and administrative facilities. So we have uh, we have approximately we have over three hundred employees, and we have uh, four uh, divisions. We have division of veterinary medicine, and a lot of that division, you know, takes care of the animals, but also perform studies on the animals. Um, They also manage the breeding colony. We also have uh, scientific divisions, uh, divisions of of microbiology, division of immunology, and uh, also uh, the the division of comparative pathology. So we have approximately 40 faculty members who have appointments uh, at Tulane. So Tulane is our, our university, is our host institution. So all of our faculty have appointments uh, primarily within the Tulane School of Medicine, but also 
the Tulane School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. Uh, and we do a large number, we do a lot of collaborative studies uh, with the faculty uh, and laboratories within Tulane, but also nationally uh, in, in other centers across the country. So how long have you guys been operating? We were uh, first founded in uh, 1963. So we've been, uh, we've been in operation for, for quite, quite a long time. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, these operations has grown over the years. The number of faculty has grown. The research, research portfolio has grown. We do mostly uh, up in, well, most of our research historically has been infectious disease. And uh, since the AIDS epidemic, uh, a large proportion of that has been AIDS related, therapeutics for AIDS, uh, vaccine studies directed at AIDS, and, and now we're even doing some studies uh, targeting uh, or aimed at eradicating HIV reservoirs in the context of, of treatment. So we do a lot of these studies. We're the only, we have the only model um, of, of Lyme disease in a non-human primate in the world. So that's, a, that's also an important area. Uh, we have a, uh, we're the only primate center that has a regional biocontainment laboratory. And you know, this, this allows us to contain pathogens and do, uh, do work at what's called biosafety level three. And we have one of the largest such facilities uh, in the country, which uh, makes us well positioned to do work on what are called select agents, agents that, that could potentially do major harm to humans, um, as, as, you know, infectious diseases, uh, and, and, you know, tuberculosis is one of the, one of the agents that we work at, at this, uh, this level of biocontainment. And this is also where we do our work on, uh, on COVID-19 in this facility. So having this facility, we were very well positioned to begin to do work in this area. We also have people who were very well trained in working in biocontainment. And we, we actually set up a core, uh, like a service core that could do work in biocontainment on pretty much any agent for any investigator nationally uh, prior to the COVID epidemic. So having this infrastructure set up, uh, we were also very well uh, positioned for COVID-19 work. In addition, we have, a, uh, we have an imaging facility uh, that can handle this level of containment. We have what's called a, a, a PET CT machine that was uh, purchased, you know, or part, part by uh, donations from Tulane, but also uh, provided by funds from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation originally to support our work on tuberculosis, but it's become very handy and very useful for our work on, uh, on COVID-19. So you guys, like you said, are, are really perfectly set up for this. And this was, uh, so when did you guys start work on all of this? Like every, our first case in Louisiana, I think was like March 9th of last year, but were you guys already working on things? How did that come about? We had received a vial 
they, uh, and we had we had to get a permit from the CDC to work with the agent and receive the agent. We had actually received the vial uh, by the time there was already the first case uh, had already been observed and or noted in the, in the New Orleans area. But we actually started working on it immediately after that. So very close to that time we were we were working on it. So let's talk about the partnership first. So there are, you, like you said, there's seven federally funded primate research centers. Are we, are they separated kind of by region? Are we the only one, like, are we kind of the Southern one or how, how does that work? Well, there's one at, at, uh, at Emory that's called Yerkes okay, in Atlanta. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. So we, if we look at the South, we have, we have Emory okay, and then we have in San Antonio, we have the Southwest National uh, Primate Research Center there. That's not associated with the university, but it's, it's, uh, it's part of a, uh, a foundation. So uh, that, that does research called Texas Biomed. But there are other ones. There's a California NPRC uh, in, uh, at UC Davis. There's the Oregon National Primate Research Center. There's one at University of Washington in, in Seattle. There's one in, uh, in Wisconsin, uh, in Madison. So they're, they're spread out throughout the country. There used to be one in Boston, but it, it closed. So there's really nothing, uh, you know, the only one on the Eastern seaboard is, uh, is Yerkes in, in Atlanta. So we can maybe back up for a second. So why primates? Is it, I'm assuming it's because they're our, our closest relative as far as research goes. Right, right. I mean, primates immunologically and genetically are the closest animals to, to humans. And when you want to look at study immune responses or, or the uh, you know, certain, uh, certain issues related to the immune system, comorbid conditions associated with uh, infectious disease, and we learned we learned with, with with HIV, for example, that it seemed that HIV even came from uh, from non-human primates. Uh, it seemed that uh, HIV came from something called HIV CPZ, which was a chimpanzee-derived virus. But there were very similar viruses in, in other uh, monkeys, for example, like African green monkeys, the mangabees that were called simian immunodeficiency virus that were very closely related to HIV-1 and even more closely related to HIV-2. So, but those types of viruses don't replicate in mice. So they couldn't even be, even be studied in mice. And there's other issues, you know, when you, when you study uh, mice, their immune system is a little bit different. Uh, if you want to study the nervous system, you want to study the eye, there's, there, there are some differences uh, if you want to look at degeneration in the eye, like macular, macular degeneration, uh, mice don't have a macula. So there are certain structures and certain things that you really need to look in, in non-human primates. Uh, and, and a lot of therapeutics have often failed. You, you know, if you try, try to develop a, a, a therapy in mice and then go to humans, see if it works, many of them have failed, uh, and it's because of the differences that, uh, that that there are. I mean, multiple sclerosis is a 
prime example that there are many uh, treatments that have, have, and even cancer, many treatments have, have worked in mice but not translated well uh, in, in human studies. So the, it, it's really important to do studies in non-human primates. And it turns out that probably less than 1% of all research is done in, in non-human primates, but we save it for the research that's gonna be most impactful to either the health of humans or our pets or, 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 or other animals themselves. So uh, the work in general is translational uh, you know, in, in its intent. So when we're looking at, at drugs and vaccines that, that get approved, is there always research that's being done on them through primates or some of them, did they always have to take that step or do some of them miss that? Normally they take the step if there is a model that's relevant to test, test in. Uh, and that, that often occurs. And often it's a step before approval uh, for, uh, for, for even testing drugs in humans. But COVID, you know, with work with the, the new coronavirus, COVID-19, things were a little different because of it's a pandemic and because it's a last national emergency, there really wasn't work that was being held up waiting for work in non-human primates. Now, some of the work was done in parallel. You know, once they started testing, um, some vaccines were tested in, in, uh, in humans uh, at the same time, or maybe shortly after they started testing them in non-human primates. And there were a lot of safety concerns uh, about some of the vaccines, whether a vaccine could even, let's say, increase, make a disease worse, make a a, a an infection worse. And that was something called immune enhancement. This was something that a lot of us, including myself, were very worried about early in, um, early in the pandemic, if we would see this and if that would be a problem. So a lot of the studies that were done uh, were very important also to determine the safety of the approaches that are currently being so taken. Is that kind of like what, um, so I've heard like the, that some children have gotten uh, a kind of a side effect where their immune system just goes kind of crazy. Is that, is that kind of what you're talking about? Like where you would enhance the immune system too much? You asked an extremely important question you know, I mean, in, a, in a, some children, small numbers of children, they have this uh, almost like a vasculitis, like a Kawasaki-like disease, it's called. And, uh, you know, it's, it's thought to be immune-mediated um, in, in young children. We don't know if, for example, if we did studies or, or, or if we did vaccinated, let's say, very young children, if we would see something like that occur but it's it's a uh, that's that's a quite that's a question immune enhancement has not been seen in a in adults young adults um so it doesn't appear to be even in elderly it does not appear to be uh, something that we're currently worried about um we're, we're not concerned about and it's it's uh but it's the cause of this in, in, in young children is not known. The, the efforts that you guys are doing now um, in 
as far as COVID vaccine um, and drug research. So we have some vaccines out, as everybody knows. Um, so what are you guys working on right now with those other primate centers? Okay, well, just to explain to you what we're doing, uh, probably in 2019, before, 18, before there was this, this issue with this uh, new pandemic, uh, there was a needs assessment done by the NIH to determine what were going to be the future needs of, uh, you know, of investigators nationally with non-human primates and what was going to be our supply. And, uh, you know, we, if we have a breeding colony of 5,000, that doesn't mean we've got 5,000 animals that we can use for studies because, you know, it takes time to breed them and have them, let's say, be born and, and get to a certain age, let's say, three, five years old at least, where you can, you can start using them for studies. So it really takes time uh, to, let's say, to increase the numbers that, of animals that you're going to need. Now, in 2018, it was clear that we were under-resourced nationally uh, in terms of our supply of nine-year-old primates. And this was probably by about 20, 25% under-resourced. And then when the pandemic came, now we're really under-resourced, you know. Uh, and at the same time, the, uh, all the export, you know, from China was shut off. And a lot of the pharmaceutical companies in their studies are really dependent on the, those exports from China of uh, macaques, they're called cinemagus macaques. Uh, that the, the, the pharmaceutical industry likes to use. So they were, they're extremely short supply now. Uh, so it, it became evident that if we had to test the number of vaccines and a number of therapeutics, and there's quite a list now of therapeutics that, that are going to want to be tested that are high priority, that we would need a lot more animals, non-human primates, than we have available. And that created a problem. Uh, so I had been, been serving on this, uh, uh, this committee, it's called ACTIVE, Accelerating Coronavirus uh, Therapeutics uh, and Vaccines. And this ACTIVE group is a public and private partnership with membership in the, in, in the government and the public and private sectors and it's convened by the foundation for NIH called FNIH. Um, and they report to the highest levels of NIH, you know, including the NIH director and Tony Fauci, uh, uh, Francis Collins. So we're, we're, so on that committee, we really discussed you know, the availability of animal models, small animal models, primates, and we basically came to the conclusion we weren't going to have enough animals. So we came up with the, the, uh, the concept of a, uh, of a coordinating center. And part of the idea of the coordinating center was that we would need to harmonize studies the way we did studies. We would have to do them the same way. Okay, the time point's the same, the same virus, the same uh, assays, and we would have to sort of make things, very, you know, with the best practices, 
the highest level of rigor and reproducibility across the centers. And this way, uh, we could make the most use of our animals. Uh, we could probably get the best data with smaller numbers of animals. And it would also enable us to compare studies that were done in one center with studies that were done in another center. And even we, we talked about uh, uh, the importance of sharing control groups. So if you wanna test, let's say vaccine A or therapeutic A, uh, and somebody wants, else wants to test therapeutic B, you don't need necessarily need to do uh, separate, completely separate studies where each one has their own control untreated group. These, these uh, control groups can be shared. And that way you can, if you're sharing the controls across groups and you're performing everything the same, you can use many less animals. So the whole concept was designed around increased rigor and reproducibility and reducing the number of animals uh, that we need. So we can- you yeah. guys are taking a, a leading role in this, right? So why why was your research center chosen to kind of lead this effort? Oh, uh, for no, it, it was for a number. Of, there was a number of reasons. One, I was sitting on the active group, you know, and I, I actually wrote the original white paper uh, proposing this. You know, we had input from the other centers, um, and uh, you know, and and uh, there was quite a bit of input on these things. Uh, and uh, we developed a, uh, a, um, an operations committee with representative from each of the centers that would meet regularly, that would work to develop these best practices. So a lot of the, the standard operating procedures that were initially reviewed by the operating operations committee were also rolled out at Tulane. Um, we, were, uh, we were doing a lot of the, let's say, initial work, we had already, you know, developed some animal models. We had already done some work on uh, on non-human primates, you know, in COVID, and uh, you know, and it, it also made sense from for some other reasons. One, I mentioned to you that we had this BO, BSL three biocontainment performance core. Uh, we were uh, we had a very strong uh, uh, quality control uh, process here uh, led by uh, Angie Bierenbaum, who's also director of biosafety here. And, uh, you know, we had a really strong uh, QA quality control, uh, quality assurance program. And because of that, she was already leading uh, or chairing the rigor and reproducibility working group of the NPRCs. Uh, you know, and as we started working on, on coronaviruses, you know, as, as a federation of primate centers, uh, we also, you know, formed this, uh, what was called the coronavirus working group. And uh, Angie also uh, became co-chair of that uh, committee that meets regularly and has presentations and discussions of all the primate centers, including other centers who do primate re research that aren't national primate centers. So, you know, having all these things that are going on, you know, very early and we were taking some leadership role in that, and, you know, at the same time, uh, our IT group 
had already been working uh, with uh, you know John Nylander, who does a lot of the uh, IT functions, uh, you know the computer, uh, uh, you know uh, technologies. Uh, you know, and our IT team had already taken over some of these functions on behalf of the NPRC system. So we were embedded in a number of areas, quality control, SOPs, some of the work we were already doing, IT. Uh, you know, there was just a number of areas that I think we, Tulane had, had some leadership in. And so we, uh, you know, we proposed the, uh, the coordinating center. We started uh, some of the processes and uh, working with the other centers. And by the way, this is something that, you know, while the other centers had communicated in real time, let's say, for example, during Zika virus, uh, you know, during the Zika virus uh, infection, never in the past have the NPRCs worked together so closely to harmonize the protocols, develop best practices, and to do everything the same as as they're doing now. So it's interesting because, I mean, I think we're seeing that across a lot of businesses and industries that this is a time where people are figuring out better ways to do things. Um, and it's interesting that it's extended onto to what you guys are doing as well, um, with the ultimate goal of, um, you know, getting these vaccines and these treatments out there um, as quick as possible um, and as safely as possible. Um, when you guys got that vial, let's talk about some of the stuff that you guys have done. Cause I know um, I, I've been getting some of the, the press releases that you did some work on uh, what makes somebody a, a, a super spreader um, and you have a, a, new, uh, a new center uh, excellence for re emerging, re-emerging infectious, infectious disease. Um, that's come up. We've been getting a lot of news from your center on what's going on. Yeah. So I'd love to hear a bit more about what you guys are. Yeah, I mean, it's, in general, is doing a lot, you know, with COVID. We have a Sero Center with James Robinson. Dalian Fusco has a project with, uh, with the CDC. You know, we're doing, there's so much that, that is being done. Therapeutics are being developed. Um, you know, in, in collaboration with, with the School of Medicine and Primate Center. There's, a, you know, just, there's just so many things that are, that are going on. You know, we're also handling this virus much better, I think, than any other university. I mean, we've done so much testing, okay, and, and so much contact tracing to the extent that Tulane could actually stay open, the school could stay open because all the students, you know, are being tested. And now we're 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 doing so much testing. We have so many, you know, and we're doing and we're going to be, you know, we're testing not just Tulane but outside in the community. And and soon we're going to be we're going to be doing sequencing of all these viruses, and uh, we'll be part of a, a larger consortium of some other universities um, that will be sequencing viruses. And, uh, and we'll be able to, What does that mean if you're, you're sequencing viruses? Okay, well, every virus, the virus has like a genetic code, you know, so, um, you know, it, it has, uh, if there are mutations, the sequences change. So these new variants of concern, for example, there's the UK variant that 
um, you know, people are, are concerned about. It seems to be transmitted much more rapidly. There's some data that it may also be more, cause more disease. There's a variance in Brazil, there's variance in, in South Africa. The South African variant is particularly concerning because it seems like it may be able to get around some of the antibodies, monoclonal antibodies that are being used. Uh, so there may be mutations that could allow a virus to escape uh, either a therapeutic or a vaccine, right? Or uh, even, even someone's, let's say, is, has had, let's say, a coronavirus infection, COVID-19 infection, and they've convalesced, they've recovered on their own. Now, is their immunity going to be able to uh, withstand or, or hold off one of these new variants mm -hmm. that, if you, you know, that, that may interact with uh, its receptor in the lungs more tightly? Uh, these are questions that, that we don't know. Are people gonna have to have new vaccines for the new variants? Uh, or are we going to have to change our approach a little bit to have more of a pan-coronavirus vaccine that is just, you know, so, so much more broadly effective? These are things that time will tell. We don't even know the durability of the vaccines we have or how long those immune responses will, will last. So the, there's, so many, there's so many open questions and there's so much research um, that needs to be done. We're doing research here uh, and we've done research here on some of the vaccines, uh, some novel vaccine and, and antigen uh, combinations, um, worked with you know, some of the companies. We're doing some work on uh, you know, what are called monoclonal antibodies. These are antibodies that are made in the laboratory and can be scaled up and can be used therapeutically. We're doing studies uh, on some of these. And we started a lot of this, it was under Operation Warp Speed to see how much antibody we would need to get protection, how long it would provide um, uh, protection, and then how the antibodies were distributed throughout the animal's uh, body. So there's so many of these studies that we're, we're doing and continue to do. Uh, we're designing some new vaccines now that we're, you know, we're going to be uh, testing soon. And now we have mouse models up and running too, not just human primates, but not, not just the non-human primates, but we have some mouse models that we're uh, working, at, working on that seem to be very important, particularly since uh, we have a shortage of non-human primates. And uh, at the present time, studies on COVID that require non-human primates because of the shortage are being prioritized by what's called an expert panel uh, that's out of, the, out of the NIH, but it's has public and private uh, membership. And um, so only studies with the highest priorities on COVID are now being done in non-human primates. So the, there are other studies that, you know, there's a drug that may be going to the FDA needs certain data, you know, in an animal model, the, the, the mouse models are, have been, you know, proved useful for some of this as well. So what about some of the long-term effects? Are you guys starting to look at any of those yet? Like those people who are, are uh, having horrible fatigue, things that they're, that's just sticking around for months at a time, has, 
has that kind of come into anything yet? Yes, yes. I mean, we we are we're we're starting to look at uh, at uh, at some of these issues. Um, one of our faculty members, uh, Tracy Fisher, has data in the non-human primate models that show uh, effects in the brain. That show they can that show micro hemorrhaging in the brain. So these small vessels that are bleeding into the tissue in uh, in, in in these uh, infected animals. So it's very these sorts of things are very concerning. Um, you know there are there's potential for cardiovascular disease. A lot of the patients uh, with COVID infection are getting arrhythmias. Uh, there is this issue of fatigue. There's, there's, there are many issues, and we absolutely need animal models for what is called long COVID. Um, right. We're we're doing a lot of, of discussion around that now, and we're trying to develop protocols where we could, uh, let's say, no one has ever done this before, but, you know, let's say an animal recovered from COVID, let's say a, a non-human primate, just like people do, they recover, right? Or it, it, when they do recover, they go, people go back to work and they go, you know, they come back to some of the things they're doing. Uh, so we have these animals in containment so they don't spread the virus. But if we develop testing methods and protocols, so we know you know, how long, let's say we need to keep them in biocontainment and then we can take them out biocontainment and maybe study them initially in a quarantined environment. Can we do studies, longer term studies, look at the longer term effects of COVID? So this is something that we are really interested in. The NIH is really interested in and we actually have some, um, you know, some committees that are meeting now and we're discussing how best uh, to address this, but it's going to be a, an extremely important area of research going forward. I mean, right now, the long to study the long-term effects of COVID in a biocontainment environment would not be possible because one, the expense of working in containment, and two, there are so many other studies that are short-term that are being done uh, in these containment facilities that there just wouldn't be room. So, like you said, you guys have done, you work on a, a bunch of different things. Um, has COVID kind of just taken over? Is this a, a majority of what you're working on? I'm assuming this is where the funding is going. Um, what is this? How much of your well, work is COVID now? How much of our work is COVID? I would say uh, probably 25%, I would say, is COVID <laughs> right now. Uh, all of the infectious work in COVID, as I mentioned before, has to be done in our biocontainment facility. Okay. Some of our other work, let's say on Lyme disease or on that's HIV related, a lot of these other things can be done at biosafety level two, which is really a standard level of containment for working with non-human primates. So we have not, you know, the, those, a lot of those other areas have not suffered 
uh, as much as you might think because we can continue some of those studies. Now there are other areas like tuberculosis and some of these studies that were planned were longer term and we haven't been able to start those studies. Um, you know, and, and some of those have been on hold. You know, there are issues among, you know, our investigators, their technicians, uh, people, let's say who had, let's say somebody could have had COVID themselves, they might've been quarantined, they might have risk family members, they might've worked from home. So there are many other factors that may impact some of these other areas, not just being competed out by the COVID work. Um, now we've been testing, you know, all of our, uh, you know, all of our employees. We now get tested uh, twice a month, uh, and we we wanted to protect our employees from getting COVID from each other. And we have other social distancing practices and mask requirements. We've eliminated uh, visitors. There's a lot of things we're doing, you know, to make the environment safer. At the same time, we didn't want anybody, you know, any of the humans to spread the virus to the animals, which is another reason why we are very careful about screening, um, you know, our workers here. But yeah, yeah other yeah. studies are going on. There has been some slowdown and other things, but the biggest areas that have suffered are the, some of the areas in biodefense uh, or tuberculosis, whatever things that could be going on in biocontainment uh, have sort of taken a backseat to COVID because of the pandemic. So we have these two that are out now, the, the Pfizer and the Moderna um, vaccines. What do you see in the future? Do you, uh, you, do you see a lot more different kinds of vaccines? We've got, like you said, all these other variants coming out. Um, what do you, Kind of crystal ball, I guess. What do you, what do you, what's in our future? <laughs> well, I mean, the way I see it, uh, you know, I see the technology behind the Pfizer and Moderna because they're RNA based, which you can synthesize, and they're packaged in these uh, lipid nanoparticles. They're very similar technology. You can easily re-engineer the, these RNAs to encode for variants. Okay. So. One possibility is to re-engineer those vaccines that would uh, that would address variants. Now the variants uh, are predicted, you know, if we don't really get control of this quickly, um, you know, to become much more dominant uh, in the United States. So uh, that could be an issue that could force, uh, you know, the some re-engineering of the vaccines that we have. We don't know how often we're going to have to give vaccines. But at the same time, you know, there are some emerging evidence that, you know, there's different, let's say, arms of the immune system. There's a cellular arm, there's a humoral arm, which is the antibodies or the, the humoral arm. There, there are, are some emerging data now that particularly in people who have recovered from COVID that T cell responses may be really important, okay, in control of coronavirus, um, you know, disease and, and, and infection. Now, I've heard I of mean, T-cells because of HIV. That became, that was a huge part of the HIV. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, T-cells, you know, are 
really important. I mean, T helper cells are at the nexus of everything because you really need T cell responses to make uh, antibodies. You know, B cell maturation, even something called class switching. You know, there, there's a whole number of things to make antibodies that requires T cell help. And to make killer T cells, which are called CD8 cells, they require T cell help also uh, for them to mature. So the, the CD4 T cells, which are the helper ones that are, let's say, the ones that the HIV virus really replicates in and you know, diminishes their numbers, um, and that's part of the AIDS pathogenesis, the, those cells are really critical to the overall functioning of the immune system. And, it, and some of the more recent data suggests that T cells are really important for coronavirus infection. And it turns out that the T cell responses come up earlier than the antibody responses, you know, in terms of the sequence. Okay. Now, it's not to say the antibodies aren't necessary because I believe they are, but there may be uh, vaccines that may come about that are, or may be developed that are more, uh, you know, that are more T cell uh, based. Uh, and when you talk about a T cell response, you're not as limited to, you know, let, let's say the spike protein or, or we call the receptor binding domain of the spike protein, which is part of the spike. You're not limited to that. You've got any protein and the virus will do. And there may be areas that are much more conserved, much more immunogenic that you could elicit or utilize for a T cell vaccine. So I think we'll see more uh, efforts in some of these directions as well. Uh, and, it, and it may be that, you know, the, you could use, a, a, let's say, a, a more of a, a T cell vaccine, um, you know, to somebody who's already had, uh, let's say, a Moderna or a Pfizer that would help the, the individuals broaden the, their immune response okay, and be more capable of, uh, of fighting off some of these variants. So are you encouraged by the uh, amount of stuff that's kind of coming down the pipeline right now, as far as uh, things to, to work on and be tested? Is, are you, are you kind of, are you, I guess, optimistic? How, how are you, <laughs> what is your thoughts this way? Yeah, I'm really optimistic. You know, I think uh, the vaccine rollout has been probably faster than, people would have thought. I mean, there are some problems in certain areas, but uh, there are a lot of people getting vaccinated and, and a lot of people also have had coronavirus. So we may have, uh, you know, we may have what's called herd immunity by, by, uh, by spring, you know, or, or early summer at the latest. So yeah, I'm very optimistic. And, and the speed at which people are working uh, on this, and there's so many companies mm -hmm. that are that are either developing vaccines, developing therapeutics, or already had therapeutics for other other immune, uh, let's say, diseases, immune disorders, immune indications that are testing these now for uh, for coronavirus, and there are just so many possibilities, and I think there are just so many new 
new things that uh, are, uh, you know, and we, we have people contacting us uh, almost daily want to test, uh, you know, they want to test, you know, one product or another from different companies or, or even research institutions. And it's just really such an exciting time. And I've, I've never seen, you know, the, the, the entire uh, scientific community, you know, work so quickly and, and communicate so extensively I mean, you know, it used to be that everybody, all the companies would really keep all their information really close to the vest and people would be worried about their stocks and their, their stock value, their patents, you know, but right now there's so much communication, you know, through the Coronavirus Working Group, the World Health Organization. There's so much uh, inf sharing of information I mean, it's done openly. Where necessary, we establish uh, these confidentiality agreements of many of these, um, you know, companies that we work with. Uh, but it's 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 really, you know, a secondary thing. I mean, everybody understands that we need to move quickly, and everybody needs to work work quickly. And we're trying to get a data center uh, really uh, stood up quickly now. We're we're um, we're working with. Uh, a, a company called data, uh, Metadata that does multi-center clinical trials. Um, and we're gonna use this as a platform for studies across the primate center. So we're trying to build the infrastructure for that to, to house the data. So then the data can be mined and we can determine what the correlates of protection are, what, what works, what doesn't work. Can we compare one study with another. They won't all be ap apples and oranges because everything is gonna be done as closely as possible to being same. So yeah, so this will be a partnership that will move forward after COVID. And this is this is a way that, that you guys are kind of, um, you know, pooling your resources and, um, and, and working kind of smarter. <laughs> Um, that will that will continue on, um, and I know you talked about the speed of everything, and that made me think that there are some people. There's definitely some hesitancy in 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 um, in some of this the thoughts on the vaccines and what's going on because it has been so fast. But do you think that's more that that's just the kind of the speed at which things are moving? That because everybody is so focused on the same thing that that we're seeing things moving faster than we're used to? Well, yeah, I think that there's been, you know, a lot of focus by multiple companies. Um, you know, it turns out, you know, that Pfizer and Moderna, they were working on RNA um, platforms before COVID, okay? And they, they had platforms that were gonna be useful. I mean, some of the RNA platforms were potentially thought to be very, you know, could be useful for cancer or some other things. But it turned out that, to, you know, the way they induced immune responses, they would be much more useful for vaccines. They were at the right place at the right time also. Okay. Uh, but things are, things are moving faster. And I know uh, the way things work is, is that everybody, you know, if it's the NIH, our program officers, we are under Office of Research Infrastructure Programs at NIH. 
NIAD, we do work for Operation Warp Speed. Everybody wants everything done yesterday. Right. So everybody has to, has to um, we have to operate more efficiently and we have to do things faster. Not that we're cutting any corners. And I know there are some people that are ap somewhat apprehensive about the vaccines and the vaccines, you know, a lot of the push for the vaccines was just because of how important it was, how many people globally were being infected and how many people were dying. So if people are apprehensive about the vaccine, they should be more apprehensive about getting the virus. I mean, right now it doesn't look like there's really any significant risk to these vaccines that have been approved. I mean, the FDA has looked at all the data. They looked at everything carefully. They've had uh, uh, what's called a data safety monitoring boards for these clinical studies, outside experts who've looked at these data very clinically, crit critically. And uh, I do not see how, you know, nothing has been politicized or pushed out, you know, sooner than it was ready. And I think some of the companies too have been very careful about what they were ready to even send to the FDA. So uh, I'm very confident about the work you know, that's been done. That's great. Well, I mean, it's good to hear. And I think that that's maybe some of the message that hasn't gotten out. Um, I, I know my husband's a physician and, and it, he gets a lot of even people, you know, and other nurses and stuff saying, what do you think? You know, do you think this is safe? And they're just looking for somebody to kind of give a. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, uh, you know, we got the oral polio vaccine. Yeah. And at that time, it was a live vaccine. So this is not a live vaccine. It's not a live attenuated vaccine. We don't have those type of risks even to think about. I mean, the fact that it's RNA, it just gets in the cells and codes for the protein. And the protein it makes generates an immune response and RNAs get degraded. So it's not something that's gonna be with you long-term either. So it's just gonna, it's gonna get degraded, go away, but you'll be left with immune response and, uh, and, uh, and memory cells that um, you know, can recall those immune responses. So it, it's a very safe platform. So it basically, doesn't... my husband explained it as kind of like it, it um... It, it kind of gives your body a map. It teaches it what to do if it comes in contact with it. That's a, a, a great way to put it. You know, I mean, by inducing an immune response against specific proteins, that's the map. And it gets, uh, it expands certain cells. I mean, whether it be, you know, T cells, even, even, uh, B cells, memory B cells that, that can mature later to make antibody. By making these cells and having more memory cells, the next time it encounters that, you've got more soldiers. Now, if you expand from there, you're already so much further ahead. Your immune system is so much further ahead and it's always gonna be a race between your, your immune system and pathogen. But this gives your immune system really a head start having had the vaccine. Well, I mean, it's exciting to hear about. We, uh, we've done a podcast with, um, with St the Stennis Center because a lot of people don't know, you know, the importance of that in our own backyard. And, and so it's exciting to talk to you, um, especially now. I mean, this is a, a huge time for you guys. Um, 
and to, to know that this kind of work is being done literally in our own backyard um, and that some of the therapeutics or vaccines that come through, you know, may be because of the work that you guys are doing. Um, and I, I think it's great. It's, it's exciting. Yeah, it's, it's been a real challenge. Uh, and it, but, it, you know, at the same time, it's a real honor for us. I mean, my, myself, even all the other staff, faculty, veterinarians, you know, everyone just takes so much pride in what they're, do, what they're doing and how they can contribute to this effort. And, uh, and we believe that, you know, what we're doing, especially with the coordinating center, can also develop a framework that if there's, you know, not if, but when there's the next yeah. pandemic, that we'll be much better positioned to deal with that more quickly. And so you do see that then, I, that's what kind of my last thing is, this This is kind of the start, right? Like we're, yeah, right. this is a, a reality that we're gonna have to get used to, that this is gonna be the first of what will probably be um, many pandemics. Um, that, that's what we think. You know, it might be two years, it might be three years, it might be five years, but there will be other pandemics. Yeah. And, and we want to be, uh, have the infrastructure in place so that we can work rapidly and efficiently to, you know, to, to deal with those as well. I mean, if we have a, you know, a coordinating center stood up, we have a data center, you know, those data can just go right in and then, you know, we will be so much further ahead. It is, it's kind of amazing that it that hasn't happened before now, along with a lot of other things. Um, but, but I'm glad that it's, that it's happening, that you guys are, you know, getting together and, and sharing the data. And it reminds me of, of, you know, medical systems where, you know, like medical records systems that they aren't shared across systems and, and, the, the kind of the sense that would make in the in the big picture yeah, yeah. yeah it's the the need uh, the needs often generate uh you know more innovation so i think that a lot of that is is what's happening you know the needs and the problems um the challenges also create some opportunity for innovation well, the innovation is very exciting. I, I really appreciate you taking out the time to talk to me and I appreciate everything that you guys are doing and, and the difference that it's gonna make um, and already has made um, to so many people's lives, so. Great. Thank you so much, Kim. I really appreciate the opportunity to convey to you the kind of work that we're doing here that we're so proud of here at Tulane National Primary Research Center. So thanks again. Wonderful. Well, thank you for joining me. And um, please keep us posted. Keep, the, keep those press releases coming. Well, well, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Biz Talks. If you like what you hear each week, don't forget to rate us and leave a comment wherever you listen to your podcasts. And follow us on social media at Biz New Orleans. For more information or to contact us, please visit bizneworleans.com slash biztalks.